Europe on a farm. It was okay. I didn't have good connectivity. I didn't have cable TV. I didn't need, you know, I went to Cal. I did well in my career. Today, not being connected is a real problem. The price for being disconnected has never been higher because it means you don't have access to information that allows you to make better decisions. And so we still have vast areas and economic groups which are either disconnected or poorly connected. How we fix that, how we create the right incentives to get those people connected will matter a lot because access to information is the way that people gain economic advantage and can actually grow. The importance and value of connectivity. It's something the person you just heard from has been passionate about for decades, which is good considering who he is and what he does now. My name is Milo Medine. I'm Vice President of Wireless Services at Google. That's right, he's Milo Medine, the man in charge of Google's wireless services infrastructure strategies. And before that, he was in charge of Google Fiber to help Google get fiber optic internet access into homes. And before that, he was co-founder and chief technology officer of At Home, the first company to launch commercially viable high-speed broadband internet service. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hello and welcome to Webmasters, the podcast that brings you conversations with the internet's most impactful innovators. And why do we want to hear from them? Well, it's because their stories can help teach all of us to become better innovators and entrepreneurs ourselves. At least that's what I believe. My name is Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. For as long as I've been building companies, I've loved hearing founder stories. They're an incredible way to learn about what works in the entrepreneurial world and, well, what doesn't work. We've actually got a bit of both in this episode featuring Milo Medine, co-founder of At Home. I'm going to tell you all about it right after I tell you about our sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you with the help and support of our sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. Those are all the types of businesses that exist in part because of the high speed networking infrastructure pioneered by this episode's guest. That includes businesses like e-commerce stores, SaaS apps, content websites, Amazon FBAs, Shopify sites, domain portfolios, and any other type of online work from anywhere internet business you can think of. If you're currently operating one of those and thinking about selling it, be sure to contact the team at Latonas. They're experts in selling internet businesses and they can help you get a great price on yours. And if you're hoping to buy an internet business, make sure you check out the Latonas website where you'll find listings for the businesses they've currently got for sale. That website is latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. 
if you've been listening to Webmasters for a while, you may have noticed multiple guests mention at home, which by the way is spelled with the at symbol. For example, we've already heard from a few people who spent time working for at home, people like Paul Makapetris, creator of DNS and featured guest of Webmasters episode number 38. And then we talked with Raj Kapoor, founder of Snapfish, CSO of Lyft and Webmasters guest from episode number 27. In fact, while researching for this podcast, I regularly run into mentions of At Home, which is a bit odd for a company that filed for bankruptcy back in 2001. But that's also a big reason why the At Home story is so interesting. At Home was the first company to launch high-speed cable internet. Of course, today, most of us get our home internet through cable companies, but before at home, consumers accessed the internet through phone lines, either dial-up or in some cases, DSL. At home set out to change all that. They wanted to be the AOL of broadband and maybe they could have gotten there, but they had some notorious missteps along the way. As a result, the story of At Home is the story of successful visionaries seeing the future of high-speed internet before just about anyone else. And it's also the story of being perhaps a bit too visionary, if that's a thing, while not being practical, which to be fair, is a common trait among entrepreneurs. In the middle of all this was this episode's guest, Milo Medin. Milo wasn't the man behind At Home's vision. Instead, he was the man recruited by At Home's powerful founders to build the technology capable of making their vision a reality. Milo succeeded. His strategy for high-speed internet has become the paradigm underpinning most of the internet infrastructure services we use today. But At Home, the company he helped found, didn't succeed. So what happened? How did At Home build the right technology, but the wrong company? In order to help answer that question, let's start by understanding what that technology was. And in order to understand that technology, let's take a step maybe a bit further back in time to understand the man who created it. I grew up on a farm in the Central Valley on the outskirts of Fresno. My dad died when I was five. So my mom raised the, my sister and me. He and my mom were Serbian. My dad came over in the 30s, went back in 1960, married my mom, brought her over. And then I was born in 68. And my sister was born a year after that. So I grew up on a farm. I was not raised in the Bay Area. English was not my first language. When my father died, none of us spoke English at home, including my mom. My mom didn't know how to drive. We all learned English together. I remember bringing workbooks home from school, and that was hard. Just like a totally foreign environment. That's definitely not the usual, shall I say, uh, tech-enabled background of the people I tend to interview here on the show. They all seem to have grown up with computers and had parents who got them early computer access. So how did you discover computers and the Internet? I was in probably seventh grade. My math teacher had a Programma 101 calculator, and it had a magnetic card. You could program things into it. That was my first experience with sort of a computer. Or when I was in junior high, I was really wanting to be a physicist. But then the computer stuff got more and more interesting to me. And then Around that same age, I had a teacher's aide uh, who had a boyfriend at Fresno State and got me an account on the timesharing system there. 
And so that was kind of cool. And then I think in eighth grade, I managed to get my mom to uh, buy me a Apple II computer. I was working part-time to pay for it. And I wrote a terminal emulator program in 6502 Assembler. And I had an Ovation cat modem. And with that cat modem, I could dial into the local university system without having someone drive me all the way to campus. And that was fun. And when I was on that system, they had sort of a messaging system, et cetera. And I heard about this thing called the ARPANET. And so I would dial into the ARPANET tip at NASA Ames Research Center. So that was kind of cool. And I would just explore the internet. And then I found this machine at MIT, the MIT MC machine, which ran ITS, the incompatible time-sharing system, I think is what it was called. And when I tried just to like log in guest or something like that, it would say, that's not a valid account. Would you like me to make you an account? So I got an account. The system let me make it. And I got an account in the MIT MC system. And that was my first experience talking to the ARPANET. I wound up graduating from high school. I applied to three schools. I applied to Stanford, Berkeley, and Fresno State. My daughter, by the way, who's 17 on our way to UC Davis, she applied to like 18 schools. You know, it's a whole different kind of animal today. And so I majored in computer science at UC Berkeley and wound up working part-time during the summer of my sophomore year at NASA Ames, the very place that I had dialed into when I was in Fresno. That was my first experience dealing with the internet and learning about that and always got very interested in communication. Okay, so yeah, that was super early internet you were getting connected to well before the web even. So what excited you about it? What made you want to pursue an internet-related career? I don't know. I Part of it is I grew up on a farm, so there weren't any kids around me. So it was a little bit of connecting with people. Now, I had friends at school, et cetera. I wasn't the outcast or anything like that. But it was kind of cool that I could connect to things. And I'm also a ham radio operator. You heard Milo mention his childhood growing up on a farm a few times. That's clearly an important part of his story. It underpins his interest in connectivity. For someone like Milo, growing up in a rural area, connectivity was a huge aspiration. And it wasn't just connectivity to other people, it was also about connectivity to resources and ideas and information, all the things he couldn't easily get where he was. So when he got to UC Berkeley, that passion for connectivity manifested itself in a desire to study computers, networks, and computer networking, which he did both at school and in a part-time role working for Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, aka Livermore Lab, the large US government nuclear research lab, which itself was an important formative experience in Milo's career trajectory, or as he puts it, Working on nuclear weapons helps prepare you for competing with incumbents, I think. Well, that definitely puts entrepreneurial competition into a whole new perspective. (laughs) More importantly, it also reflects a significant part of Milo's passion for his work, which, unlike a lot of entrepreneurs, isn't very financially motivated. Instead, Milo is motivated by the role high-speed networks play in supporting stable countries, governments, and populations. My mom always told us, you know, the country did not have to let us in. You should earn your keep. You should do good for the United States. I did not have to be let in. Your dad didn't have to be let in. We owe the country for how good it's been to us. 
So that's part of the reason I wanted to work at NASA and work I've done in the last few years with the Department of Defense and on the policy side. I guess there's still that sense of wanting to be grateful. You heard Milo refer to his current job. As mentioned at the beginning of this episode, he works at Google, so you might be wondering how those things connect. But of course, Google is a hugely important voice in how governments approach networking, and Milo helps support those efforts. We do a lot of work in 5G. Interestingly enough, I was part of an advisory board before the Biden guys got rid of all the advisory boards to the Pentagon called the Defense Innovation Board. Eric Schmidt chaired it. And uh, we got to help work with the military to help advance their systems, drive innovation, help them be more competitive. And it was interesting, my work on 5G and Google overlapped with 5G from a military and national security context. And so we produced actually an analysis a couple of years ago in April of 2019 that really changed how people thought about 5G because we actually did the modeling for how many base stations you would need at millimeter wave and at different spectrum bands and the competitiveness dynamic with us versus China and the rest of the world. And I think that is one of the areas I'm still very passionate about and working in, in terms of shared spectrum. How can we drive better infrastructure? Because today, it's not just about a kid on a farm in the Central Valley. Now it's about national competition. In China, last numbers I saw, there were 477 million fiber to the home customers. And the entire rest of the world combined was about 120 million customers. The entire rest of the world combined. You think about supply chains, you think about equipping that nation with bandwidth to be able to do things that you just couldn't do before. And the US has a lot of challenges in this space in terms of being able to build equivalent networks that can continue to go faster because now it's about a national competition. It's not just about competing between me and the farm and a friend in the city or me in the big city versus someone in rural America. It's now about nation and nation and who controls, who gets to drive innovation in higher and higher speed applications, more integration with compute to be able to do things in robotics, in AI, in sensing, in IoT, and all these other spaces that when you have enough bandwidth with a low enough latency, you can do that you could not do before. So the nation that doesn't have a good framework for competing in that space will not be driving the applications of the future. And if that's China, who is the leader, and you have civil military fusion where the Chinese government has access to all the data that's stored in Chinese businesses, that's a challenge. The US has shaped what the meaning of the internet, what freedom means, how we think about applications and the ability for entrepreneurs to create new things that can just erupt and provide value. Again, for Milo, networking and connectivity are the backbone for everything else. Without good network infrastructure, you can't enable incredible innovation. It was Milo's rural upbringing combined with his unusually early digital education that positioned him to be A, exceptionally passionate about the importance of connectivity, and B, well positioned to actually do something about it. Those efforts began in earnest when, after leaving UC Berkeley, he took a job at NASA. 
after leaving Berkeley, I sort of had to decide whether or not I wanted to do more stuff at Livermore or I had a friend of mine who said there's a new division at NASA Ames who was building communication networks, and that seemed kind of fun. And so I wound up picking NASA Ames, and I got to work in a division that built the sort of local area network and was in charge of the ARPANET. And that's where I started working in the internet engineering community and uh, helped build the first West Coast Interconnect, which we call the FIX, the Federal Interconnect Exchange. The original name, by the way, I called it the FIBA, which is a military term called the forward edge of the battle area. That's sort of the front line. I thought that was appropriate. It's the front line of routing, right? We had EGP back then before BGP and the regional networks get connected. Mike St. John's, who was at DCA, the Defense Communications Agency at the time, and uh, Jim Layton at Energy. And uh, we interconnected with each other at Ames. And we had a root name server that was there. Uh, and a whole set of other things. This was a, sort of the very early days because people used to interconnect through the ARPANET and that was not really scaling well. So we decided to build these sort of interconnect places. Anyway, the name got changed uh, to FIX because Mark Pullen, who was the DARPA officer dealing with the internet stuff at the time, said, I am not going to go up in front of Capitol Hill and explain why this thing is called this military term. Change the name. Okay, well, how about Federal Interconnect Exchange, the fix? And so that's how that nomenclature. And then there was the kicks, was the commercial exchange after that. And then we had Fix West and Fix East and all the rest of that. So you were basically helping build the initial foundation for the internet. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then when the NSFNet came about, my friends at Merit, Hans-Werner Braun, Elise Garrick, and all of them, we got them interconnected as well. And then I had been working on the NASA version of that network. So we had connected all the NASA field centers together with IP connectivity, and then began extending that uh, to researchers globally. So we put in with our friends at the University of Hawaii, Torben Nielsen and company there, connections into Australia, New Zealand, Japan. They started off slow and then we added capacity to them. We put in connections in parts of Europe, we even put a connection into uh, Sunderstrom Fjord in uh, Greenland and to McMurdo Base in uh, Antarctica uh, to support researchers down there. And I had sent people down to the Antarctic in order to install that. We built an earth station on Black Island, which is, I think, 40 kilometers north of McMurdo Base, and put a microwave relay across the ice cap. We got a good deal on a used satellite, an entire satellite, just to get one and a half megabits per second from McMurdo back to the rest of the internet. <laughs> I kind of love the mental image of getting a good deal on a used satellite, like it's akin to getting a good deal on a used car. It didn't have a lot of station keeping fuel, sort of at the end of its life. And yeah, you can get some good deals on satellites from time to time. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why, but that seems good to know. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Maybe, maybe it'll come in handy at some point in the future. But for now, I guess what I really want to know and, and understand is how you went from building the internet for the U.S. government to building an internet broadband company. How did that transition happen? At some point, I got converted from a contractor to government, and I wound up being a branch chief at NASA Ames. And I was very happy, actually, doing all sorts of interesting things. And then one day, I kept getting these stickies on my desk from the secretary that said a guy named John Doerr from some place called KPCB called you. 
I don't know who this is. I don't know who KPCB. It sounds like a law firm. And so I hadn't gotten around to returning calls. By the way, it seems worth mentioning that Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers is basically one of the most successful venture capital firms in the world. And John Doerr is the billionaire VC who helped lead rounds in companies like Netscape, Amazon, Intuit, and Google. When John Doerr calls you, you call him back immediately. But of course, that's not what Milo did. Finally, he calls me and I'm in the office. I pick up the phone and it's John Doerr. And John is like, hey, you know, uh, I've been trying to reach you, et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to talk to you about an opportunity. And I'm like, I'm sorry, who are you? And what is it that you do? Well, I work for a venture capital firm. And while we have this opportunity, we're looking at building something. And I go, well, that's fine. Send me an email. I'm happy here. I'm happy to go see if I have friends who would be interested in it. And then he said, your friend, uh, Jeff Baer, thought that you would be really interested in this. I'm like, well, that's interesting. You don't really give out names of people for opportunities if you're close friends. And so I thought that was interesting. I said, well, okay, I'm happy to get together and chat. Great. How about tomorrow? And well, I'm just about to leave. I'm going to Washington on a trip, but I'll be back on Friday night. So I said, well, how about breakfast on Saturday in Palo Alto? So we had breakfast, uh, and he goes, I'd like to bring along my associate, Will Hurst. Will Hurst, you mean like the newspaper guy? He goes, yeah, he works at a firm. Okay, this is kind of interesting. And so we end up meeting for breakfast at the Good Earth in Palo Alto. I can't believe you're basically just trying to blow off John Doerr and William Hurst. Like, like that's, that's absurd. So what did you three talk about in your meeting? Why did they want to speak to you so badly? He said, yeah, we're working with John Malone at TCI, and they've developed this thing called a cable modem, and it can push Ethernet data over the cable lines. And Jeff thought you would be a great person to go build an internet service with this and book cable modems in people's homes. And I go, well, do you understand how slow the core of the internet is? You don't want to like build 10 megabit connections to people's houses and then they'd end up just being congested to the next hop, you know, with the networks getting faster, but our backbones are just going to DS3. And this is kind of pointless. It's not going to work because you're just going to move the bottleneck. Wow. So how did they respond to you basically dumping on their idea? They were a little disappointed because Jeff had said, well, this guy's really smart and blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling him this is not going to work. Go, well, could you do it some different way? Like, how could you fix that? And I'm like, ah. Well, if you thought about like a distributed computing problem where you had caching in different places and then common content would get cached and then you still need a fast backbone, but that would give you at least fast access to common content and all the rest. But that would require computers and being lots of different places and be very expensive. How expensive? So I'm doing some back of the envelope calculations. I don't know, like. $120 million. It was, oh, if you needed three or four billion, it would take longer. And I'm like, three or four billion? And an orbiter costs a billion dollars. Like, who are these guys, right? So I remember the conversation really well because this is like bigger than NASA's budget. How could you do this, right? But I still wasn't that interested in leaving, but it was an interesting conversation. I mean, that sounds like a very interesting conversation. But eventually, they did convince you to leave NASA, obviously. So how'd that happen? How'd they do it? So that led to a meeting where he said, well, I want to have you go out to Denver and meet with TCI, the cable operator, you know, their partners. And I said, well, you know, I have to take time away from work to fly out and fly back. No, just come on my jet. I'm like, jet? 
I'm allergic. So I took a day off work and went out to SFO and took off with them, went to Denver. And I was talking to these guys about cable modems and how you build architecture and blah, 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 blah. And they were like, well, great. When do you start? I go, well, I'm not interested in leaving NASA. Everybody's like looking at each other in the room at that point. And I had a couple more meetings like that. And later on, they said, you know, look, why is it that you like working in NASA? I could have impact. Well, don't you think you could have more impact on more people by building it this as opposed to working in NASA? Well, I guess that's true. They said you can make a lot of money. It's like, well, I was raised on a farm. I'm single. I don't really appreciate good things, right? I'm boring. But the point about being able to have impact was the thing that convinced me to leave NASA and join at home. And John really was the founder. It was his idea. He gave me a problem and I thought about how to solve the problem. And that's how I kind of decide where I work. Somebody gives me a problem and I, my brain won't stop working on it. Then that's kind of how I decide what I work on. It really is as simple. I've never planned my career. It's just people came to me with interesting questions like, could you solve this? And how would you do that? And if I couldn't stop thinking about it, then that's how I decided to work on things. So it's at this point that Milo helps launch At Home with backing from John Doerr and KPCB. Will Hurst took the role of founding CEO, while Milo was in charge of technology. Their launch partnership is with TCI, Telecommunications Inc., a big cable network provider that would soon be acquired by AT&T, and that set the foundation for how At Home would work. At Home partnered with cable companies, merging their technology with cable company infrastructure to deliver broadband internet access. It was the first for real mass market broadband provider in the U.S. We had working contracts with TCI, Comcast, Cox, Cable, uh, Rogers and Shaw up in Canada. And we helped work on a number of things in terms of how to build a network that was really fast. And thinking about it, not just as a telecom network. It's funny because today people think that cable operators are the dominant broadband supplier in the United States, which is true. You look at their growth rates, financials, et cetera, it's just an amazing business. But when we started at home, Nobody believed that the cable guys were able to deliver a reasonable internet service. You got fuzzy analog TV, right? And the Bells, the phone companies, were the ones who were owning the information and future of the United States. And I remember having debates with DSL engineers. After cable modems started coming out, it was clear that ISDN, which was the path that the telephone companies went, integrated switch digital network. So instead of a 64 kilobit voice connection, you got a 64 kilobit data connection, you could bond two channels together. And 128 kilobits, you had these terminal adapters that would take that and give you a switched connection. And then, well, you know, switching didn't work out so well. ATM didn't work out so well. All the stuff got relegated to the ash heap of history. And then they came out with DSL. And it could go one and a half megabits per second. And then I remember having these conversations. The first services we built were 10 megabits, and people said, we're in dial-up. Why would anybody need 10 megabits? And this kind of mentality is still around. Why do people need gigabit? So the interesting thing that drove cable modems in the early days was two things. One, it was always on. Prior to cable modems, dial-up service, you had to connect. You weren't always connected. And there was no point in having a local network at your house because 
well, you weren't always connected. Who's going to switch it up, right? So having an always-on connection was the first step in extending the value to other devices in the home. So were you in competition with the cable companies? Totally aligned with the cable companies. We split revenue and all the rest of that. We competed against the phone companies who were trying to come out with DSL, and they were the dominant player. Nobody thought cable was serious about it. And in fact, in the early days, the cable operators weren't really thinking about data as a big product. Their view, the folks at TCI specifically, were like, well, DirecTV launched, and they had digital TV service. There was no high def back in those days. But their service was digital. You didn't have all this noise and fuzziness like in the analog TV systems, right? They were worried that they were going to lose their video subscribers to the satellite guys, to TV. And they thought for their premium subscribers, having high-speed internet service would be something that would keep their subscribers from leaving cable and going satellite. So it was sort of a churn reduction goal, not a mainstream product. But that didn't last, right? Like Comcast or whatever cable company you want to point to now runs its own cable internet. Why is that? Why isn't it still at home? Um, one of the things that happened over time was we always thought this was the mainstream product. You could move video over the internet. It will eat everything. But that wasn't the way the cable guys thought about it. Over time, they realized this. And that's when the relationship with at home became very contentious because this thing became not this ancillary product to help reduce churn. This became your core. Once they started realizing that, they had to own it. And that was the source of a lot of tension. Source of tension might even be a bit of an understatement. We're talking lawsuits and bankruptcies and all sorts of fun corporate intrigue. Basically, on the business side of the company, At Home was trying to grow its content, specifically content optimized for its high-speed network, which nobody else really had. So in 1998, At Home bought slash merged with Excite, which was the third largest internet portal at the time behind AOL and Yahoo. The price was somewhere around $6 billion, making it one of the largest internet purchases of the time. In the minds of the people at both Excite and At Home, this pairing would give Excite enormous reach while giving At Home content it could deliver to users and monetize on via advertising. In theory, it kind of made sense, I, I guess, but in practice, not so much. The short version is the cable companies didn't really agree. And after all, at home's 4 million users were actually cable company customers. So the cable companies decided to take them back. And by the way, this all happened in the shadow of the huge dot-com bust, meaning Excite's business dried up pretty soon after the two companies merged. And you know, that wasn't a good thing. If you read reports from the time, it all sounds pretty messy, though for Milo, who cared more about the technology than the business, it was perhaps a bit more exciting. We took the company public. I got to do the S1 and the Reds and IPO and all the rest of that. It was a very eye-opening experience, dealing with board members and cable guys squabbling with each other. You know, AT&T came in and bought TCI, and that was an amazing change at that point because AT&T was this massive company. They were not the usual suspects when it came to cable guys. 
And Mike Armstrong, who was CEO at the time, wanted to combine video, data transport, and the rest of all the different services, including phone services, to deliver in sort of an integrated package. And that was my first experience being with like a really big company, a really big bureaucracy. It was just crazy. I remember visiting their learning center in New Jersey to give a talk. And they had these letters on the outside of the conference rooms where the meetings were held. So what do these letters mean? Oh, that's the minimum grade level you have to be to attend. What? Yeah, well, lower level people aren't allowed to go to these meetings. You have to be at a certain level. And I remember the phone systems there, when you called each other on the internal phone system, your grade level would show up. So you didn't have to answer if it was like a junior person calling you. Very different culture in that company, but it was a great experience learning about it. As Milo was getting a masterclass in corporate America from the inside, the stock price of At Home went from somewhere around $128 a share in the first quarter of 1999 to roughly $1 per share by the third quarter of 2001 and a bankruptcy filing. So yeah, not so good. But even though from a company perspective that's not a successful outcome, I'd argue At Home was wildly successful in terms of changing how people were connected to the internet. At Home ushered in the idea of an always-on high-speed internet connection at your house. It's something millions and millions of people around the world take for granted today, and it enables much of what we do, but someone had to figure out how to make it possible. That someone was Milo. Sure, at home might seem like a relic of the past, a third-party enabler of cable internet, until the companies themselves realized it needed to be their primary business. However, none of what the cable companies do now would have been possible without the critical paradigm shift that Milo enabled. Specifically, Milo is the person who understood that in order for high-speed internet to be a viable thing, the data had to be moved closer to the end user. You know, it's interesting, this model of cash looting, local caching to speed things up. Today, CDNs provide that service, and they carry, I think, north of 90% of consumer data traffic. Uh, this forward deployment of thinking about networks not as communication systems, but really distributed computing systems where you've got compute in different parts of the infrastructure and storage in different parts of the infrastructure to optimize data flow. There are entire companies that do nothing other than that. And if you now think about mobile edge compute in the 5G context, again, that is moving compute deeper into the network, changing DMARC point from where the compute and the cloud is now. We didn't have the cloud back then, but if you want to think about the core of what we were building, that was effectively trying to move the compute, move the data closer to the user to avoid bottlenecks. See, one of the interesting things is nobody wants to talk to each other. They all want to talk to the internet. In a traditional phone network, people in a city would make calls to each other primarily, and sometimes they would go long distance. Everything in the internet is long distance. Nobody talks to each other in your neighborhood. All the traffic flows up. And that is a really a challenge from a network infrastructure perspective, because 
you've got millions of users, all their traffic coming up who wants to now talk to highly concentrated cloud infrastructure. Well, that's a mess. You're, you could easily have bottlenecks. So how do you fix that? Well, you move the DMARC, you move the data closer and closer and closer to the user so that you're not having to aggregate all those flows at interconnection points that just can't scale. And so this model of what we did back in the 90s of how do I avoid congestion by moving data closer to the user, by moving caching closer to the user, that now is sort of the fundamental structure of how the internet is organized. And it's continuing, you know, as access network speeds go up, this issue about how to avoid aggregation and concentration gets worse and worse. So what you're seeing is the DMARC point between compute, aka the cloud, and the home or the business. That DMARC is moving. We used to interconnect at a few locations nationally. Then it went to places that are regional. And now in every big city, you've got direct interconnection in many networks because it's too expensive for the access network provider to move all that data across country. So you just keep pushing content closer and closer and closer. In the end, the cloud will eat everything. You just have a little bit of network access network at the end. But you're going to have the edge of the cloud in every infrastructure, whether it's fixed or mobile, is going to end up being moved closer because nobody wants to talk to each other. They all want to talk to the internet. Do you see what I mean? The cloud-based world we live in where the internet is everywhere all the time and we just tap into it with whatever device we happen to have handy, that wouldn't have been possible in the old dial-up world. We needed someone, a, a person like Milo, to figure out how to bring the data closer to users in order to leverage all the increased speeds. In that sense, even though at home failed as a business, I suppose you could make the argument that it was a successful entrepreneurial endeavor, at least from Milo's perspective. At home successfully solved the problem Milo wanted to solve, even if it ultimately wasn't the company to continue implementing the solution. The result, in other words, was exactly what Milo wanted and continues to push for, which is better connectivity. It's interesting. I've been to refugee camps in Africa with the UN. I remember in this camp, there were teenagers learning to weld by watching a YouTube video on a one and a half inch feature phone screen. They couldn't read, but they could learn how to weld because of video that was being delivered to them. I remember talking to this other gentleman who had been there for, I think, 12 years. And he said, We need internet because we need to find a way to upgrade ourselves. And I thought that was really insightful. Now, you can waste time on TikTok and do stupid stuff with the internet too. The ability for you to upgrade yourself, to learn, to pursue an interest, you have access to the world's information now. And my kids just treat that casually. But when I was growing up, Going to the best library and being able to read the best works was just a huge privilege. Now it's almost not valued anymore. You can do that so easily. And I do worry that we've created an environment of abundant connectivity, but what are we using it for? Are we using it to waste our time? Or are we using it to upgrade ourselves? Like that gentleman in Africa. 
honestly, I don't really see it as an either or question. Why not both? After all, you could listen to a wildly entertaining podcast, you know, like webmasters, and learn a lot at the same time. Am I right? <laughs> of course I am, which is why you're going to head on over to your podcasting app of choice and make sure you're subscribed to Webmasters so you get the next episode just as soon as it's released. And while you're there, please take a moment to leave a nice review and maybe even share it with a friend. I want to thank Milo Medin for taking the time to share his story and the story of At Home. I also want to thank our sound engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help pulling together this episode. And I want to thank our sponsor, Latonas, for their support. If you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, make sure you check out latonas.com. If you've got any thoughts, concerns, or feedback about this episode, you can let us know on Twitter. We are at WebmastersPod. And I'm on Twitter, too, at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N or find me on my website, aaronedinnan.com. While you're there, you'll also see lots of other content about startups and entrepreneurship that I think you're gonna enjoy. Just like I think you're gonna enjoy the next episode of Webmasters we've got, it's coming soon. In the meantime, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>